Well, I was invited to attend a, uh, a legal proceeding this week uh, down in the south side of the city, uh, one of the courthouses there, for Officer Jason Van Dyke. that name ring a bell? He's the one who uh, has been charged with murder of Laquan McDonald. Uh, Jason Van Dyke is a white police officer. Laquan McDonald, a young black man uh, who was shot in, uh, in a police pursuit a couple years back. It was actually 2014. It's been a huge part of uh, of, of local news and, and national news as this whole issue of uh, police brutality, uh, white police, black uh, victims. I mean, it, it's been a big, big thing, right? You all are very aware of that. And so, and so there was this, this hearing to see whether or not uh, these murder charges might be dismissed against Officer Van Dyke. And uh, at the end of the day, they were not. So he's going to go ahead and stand trial. I was invited, as were lots of pastors, to come and, and just be there. Uh, and I wasn't able to go uh, because I had a different appointment to keep this week. But I, but it was on my mind a lot. And and here's what was on my mind. I was thinking about this trial because of the, the just the the visibility, the grand nature of the of the the whole case. I was thinking about how interesting it would be to see what kind of attorneys are representing the sides. Right? You've got the defense attorney for Officer Van Dyke, and you've got the prosecutor. Uh, who is representing the case of Laquan McDonald. And, and my guess uh, is that as this case unfolds, there's going to be some big-name attorneys attached to the case because it's such a big deal, right? And it was interesting to me just thinking about that just a few months ago, you know, a couple years ago, you've got two people who are essentially invisible, just, you know, outside of their own spheres of influence, they're, they're kind of nobodies. You have a, a very blue collar, uh, police officer, nobody had ever heard of. And this young, poor black guy in the south, south side, he's grown up in the foster system, and, and again, nobody's ever heard of him. And for those two, you know, relative nobodies, I'm gonna just turn this off, Jake. Those two relative nobodies to be now all of a sudden represented by some high powered attorneys would be quite a turn of events, wouldn't it? Uh, that just occurred to me, and I, I'm sharing that with you because it's a setup for something I want to come back to as we wrap up this sermon. So just file that away, all right? Just this idea of, of big-name attorneys representing what were nobodies uh, who are now suddenly, they have representation by somebodies, all right? File that away in your mind. Uh, it was on my mind also because of this text. As we look at this passage which Rachel read for us, and, and we'll read again, uh, the word testimony or testify, so either the noun version or the verb version of this word testimony appears eight times in this passage. And so you get this picture of a courtroom. And so that's what I want you to do this morning. As you're listening to the message, I want you to, to have in your mind this courtroom scene here in 1 John chapter 5. And, and let, me, let me just try to help paint the picture of this courtroom for you. You've got the prosecution. We're sitting over here, right? You've, you've seen uh, courtroom TV shows, right? The prosecution's always over here. Defense is always over here. You've got the prosecution. And the prosecution in this particular case represents the false teachers that John is writing this letter to to contradict, to combat, all right? And the, the accusation that they're making is against the defendant, and the defendant in this case we'll call the apostolic testimony of Jesus Christ, 
the, the identity, the true identity of Jesus is on trial as these false teachers are putting Jesus on trial and saying that He was not the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, that He was something less than that. So you've got the prosecution false teachers. You've got the defense over here, which is the apostolic testimony. It's John defending the identity of Jesus. And then you've got, and you can just, let's pretend it's you, okay? You're the jury. You're in the jury box. And the jury are the, the ones that John's writing to. These are, these are John's readers. And he's making this case before the jury and asking you to come up with a verdict, right? So there's our scene. And as we go through the course of this passage and the course of the, of the text, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of walk through the opening argument, the witnesses that are called, the closing arguments, and then the seeking after a verdict in this trial, uh, which we'll call the trial of the ages, because it really is. There's no trial. There's no case more important than this one. Who is Jesus? And what are you gonna do with it, right? So let's walk through that together. Let's start with our, our opening point here, which is the opening argument. We'll look at verse 6 again. John says, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So just a quick opening argument that John would make here in the courtroom. He's, he's basically saying this. There's an accusation uh, from the false teachers. And, and again, it was this. It was that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God. That what Jesus was was just a regular man who at around 30 years of age was baptized. And on that baptism, he received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they would consider that to be the, the messianic anointing. They wouldn't argue that it was a, the spirit of Messiah who indwelled Jesus, but it was, it was only at that point that Jesus became divine. And that his divinity carried for the public ministry that he performed in Israel for those three years, but it ended, the spirit's presence departed from him right before his death. And the reason that they would say that is because they couldn't in their minds comprehend God, the Spirit of God, being tried as a criminal and actually hung on a crucifix. God couldn't die like that. So the Spirit must have departed from Jesus. When Jesus died, He was just a mere man like you or me. So the essence of that belief then was not unlike what we see often in our own culture. And we've seen for thousands of years as people have wrestled with what do you do with Jesus? The bottom line was this. They would view Jesus as a, as a good teacher, right? As a very moral person. Indeed, even one who was anointed by God for a period of time. But nothing more than that. We hear that often. You, you might go out and ask people, what is your opinion of Jesus? And you'd probably get a lot of similar responses. Well, he was a, he was a good teacher. He was a very moral man. He was, he was, he was even anointed maybe by God. Uh, not unlike the way people would, would say that Muhammad may have been anointed by God or, or Buddha was enlightened somehow, right? Jesus sort of fits into that category. But if you press on was he, is he the eternal and only son of God, who not only was anointed during his ministry, but died for a specific reason under that anointing, many people would say, well, no, I don't, I don't go that far. 
And that's basically where the false teachers are at. So here, here's John, again, walking into the churches of his day, uh, and he's seeing this kind of teaching begin to take a lot of uh, root in the church, and he's saying, look, I am going to make a case for you to demonstrate that Jesus is far more than these false teachers are saying. That Jesus is, in fact, the eternal and one and only Son of God. And I'm going to call some witnesses to the stand, if you will, and the witness's testimony is going to demonstrate that the prosecution is lying. Okay? So here we go. Let's follow John as he makes this argument. John begins to call his witnesses. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. I'll start in verse 6 again just to give you the whole, the whole scope. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So he's going to call three witnesses to the stand. And the first witness that we're going to look at, he calls to the stand, is the water. Now, by the way, when, when this was read to you, did, did it, did one of the thoughts that maybe occurred to you was like, what the heck does that mean? The spirit, the water, the blood, these three. What, what is he talking about? All right. Well, it's really, it's, it's important and it's really awesome to, to, to figure out what he's talking about. And, and this is it. The first witness, the water, is, rep represents Jesus' baptism. Okay? And what John is saying is that not only was Jesus' baptism the official beginning of His public ministry, that is something that the false teachers would agree with, but He's saying, no, there's more to it than that. It was also God's public witness to His true identity. So we look back into the Gospel accounts as to what actually happened at the baptism of Jesus. We see this in Mark chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son with whom... I am well pleased. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River, and this amazing scene happens. This audible voice is spoken from heaven as this dove that represents the, the, the Spirit descends upon Jesus and remains on Him. And John was told, when, when this happens, you'll know that this is the one who was foretold. This is the one that you were prepared to make the way for, the Messiah. And the voice confirms it. This is my son. And people heard this voice. And John uh, is later uh, sort of interviewed about his experience that day in John chapter 1, verses 30 and 34. And he said this. He said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, he's attesting to the eternal nature of this one who would come. He was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on who you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John is saying, look, that baptism was the testimony of heaven that this indeed is the eternal one. This is not just an anointing of a regular guy, but it's the coming of one who preexisted. For John to say that is, is, is significant because John was older than Jesus. All right. So for him to say he came before me, he existed before me is a is an attestation. This is this is an eternal one. This is the promised Messiah. And this witness is critically important. But again, this particular witness wouldn't have been a huge problem for the false teachers. They might have disagreed about the eternal nature, but they wouldn't have disagreed that at this moment, Jesus was anointed as the Messiah, the spirit of the Messiah. They believed that that happened at the baptism as well. So John doesn't stop there. He, did, he says it's, it's the water that a witness, but not just the water. And he calls, he calls his next witness. And when he calls this next witness, if you've ever seen a, an episode of, of Perry Mason or Law and Order, when, when the, the, you know, the, they're calling the witness that's like super controversial, nobody expected this witness to enter. What does the, what does the courtroom do? Everybody goes, <gasps> right? This is that moment, right? It's not just the water, but he says, I'm calling now the blood. And the, and the, and the, and the crowd goes, Whoa. what does the blood represent? The blood represents Jesus' death. So the water was his baptism. The blood was his death. And this calling of this witness is now a direct challenge to the face of the false teachers. Let's talk about what happened at his death. Because again, if, if Jesus' death was nothing more than just an ordinary man dying a criminal's death, then you would expect there to be no fanfare around it. You would expect there to be, unlike the baptism where this, this moment, this supernatural thing happened where the dove descended and you hear the voice, that is, at the death of a nobody, there would be none of that. And yet, when we look at the death of Jesus, we see that like his baptism, his death provided many clear ways for God to, to testify to his true identity as the eternal son. What happened at the death of Jesus? Well, if we were to flip over to Matthew 27, you would see this, that darkness overtook the land during the middle of the day. When Jesus died, the sun went away. Darkness took over because it was a picture of the Father forsaking the eternal Son. That had never happened before. The Father and the Son had existed in perfect fellowship and harmony Right? Perfect relationship for all eternity until this moment when his, the wrath of the Father for our sin was poured out on the eternal Son and that wrath caused the Father to turn his face. And when that happened, something cosmic happened. It shook the universe. It shook the cosmos and light went away. Who is Jesus? He's the light. Of life. He's the light of the world. And when that light was separated from the fellowship of the Father, it affected the cosmos. Darkness took place. And this unbearable pain caused Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And when Jesus finally breathed his last, there was another astonishing miracle as the veil in the temple was torn in two. This veil that, that had been in the temple and was a, as a sign of the separation between a holy God and sinful people. You could not go into the presence of a holy God as a sinner, which all of us are, without being completely annihilated. That veil was a protection. It protected us against the holiness of God. But in the death of Jesus, when the wrath of God was poured out on Him for our sins so that we could be forgiven, the veil ripped. It tore. And it was a miraculous moment. And not only was this happening, but the earth began to shake. And when the earth began to shake, rocks began to split. And get this, tombs began to burst open. And the witness of those who were there said, as the rocks were splitting and the earth was shaking and the tombs were splitting, dead and buried saints began to rise up out of the grave and walk. Because it was a demonstration that death was being defeated and resurrection power was ramping up in the eternal Son of God. So all of these things were, were, were happening. And there were witnesses to all of these things. And so terrifying was all that was being displayed in this moment that a, a hardened Roman soldier began to cry out in fear, surely this was the Son of God. John's like, are you kidding me? You, 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 you missed that? You would deny that? That in his death, this was just some guy? No. And it's important. Again, it's so very important for us to understand that, that the one who died on the cross was indeed the divine Son of God because if the man who died on that cross was just some dude, our sins could not be forgiven. So the, the damning nature of the testimony of the false teachers was that they were ripping the heart out of the Gospel. And that's the damning testimony against those who in our own day and age would say Jesus is a good moral teacher and, and somebody to be followed for sure, but He wasn't the eternal Son of God. What they're doing is they're ripping the heart and the hope out of the Gospel itself. If Jesus didn't die as God on a cross, our sins are not forgiven. Your religion is garbage. It matters. Death would not be conquered unless it was conquered by the author of life. Yeah, I mean, what a worthless fairy tale we would have. And yet John says, no, there's, there's another witness here. Not just his baptism, but his, his death. And then John calls a third witness. And the third witness he calls to the stand is the Holy Spirit Himself, Jesus' promised Helper. Now there's something different about this witness. Something different. If, if we were to, to visualize the courtroom here, we would expect that as a witness is walking up, the bailiff is going to stop them and he's going to maybe ask them to put their hand on a Bible or raise their hand and say to the witness, do you swear to tell the truth? The whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God, right? That's what a bailiff would say. So if, if the water were going up to the stand, you know, 
John's pointing to the water and to the blood. He's pointing to the death and the baptism. And he's, he's looking for evidence in their testimony that points to what's true, right? There's evidence here that points to the truth. But when the Spirit comes up to the stand, John says, this is a different kind of witness. The Spirit actually is truth. So the bailiff isn't going to say to the Spirit, do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? The, the bailiff would simply look at the Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, just be yourself. Right? Like You, you do you, and we'll get what's true because the Spirit is in fact truth embodied. Not embodied. He's a Spirit, but you get my gist. Spirit, you do you. And, and the Spirit who gives testimony then as truth can always be relied upon because truth is His very nature. I want you to, to just catch something. Those of you who have been with us the whole time that we've been looking through this letter to 1 John, there's something really neat about the nature of the Trinity that we've seen John unfold in this letter. We've, we've gotten the nature of each member of the Trinity. It started off with him testifying in chapter 1 about who Jesus is, and he testified that Jesus is life. The life was made manifest. So the very nature of Jesus is life. And then a little bit later in the letter, we he talks about the nature of the Father, and he says, God is love, right? The nature of God is love. That's what love is. It's God. If we know love, we look at God. And here we see the nature of the Spirit is truth. Right? Did you catch that? So he, he, just like he's saying God is love and Jesus is life, spirit is truth. Truth doesn't exist apart from God. That's the point. If you're going to call a witness and you're hoping that that witness points you to the truth, there's no greater witness to call than truth itself. And he's saying truth doesn't exist apart from the spirit because God is truth. It's not subjective. Truth is not subjective. Right? Spirit's not going to get up here and, and, and say, well, this is true for me. This is my truth. It's just objective. It's not the popular view. It's, it doesn't change from time to time. It doesn't change from culture to culture. Unlike what we hear so much in our own day and age, truth is your truth. There's my truth. It changes. It's your culture. None of that. John says, no, God is true because He's ultimate reality. So I call him to the stand. And the examining attorney, whether it's John or the prosecution doing a cross-exam, again, unlike other witnesses, they're not going to have to figure out how to formulate questions in order to get this witness, the Spirit, to give testimony about Jesus because that's exactly what the Spirit's truthful testimony is always about. Whenever he speaks, he's giving testimony to Jesus. He's testifying of Jesus. So he gets up on the stand, and, and you don't even have to ask him a question. You just can get up there and start talking about Jesus. This is who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus promised His disciples that the Spirit would do uh, for His ministry. John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. That's His role. In John 16, verses 13 to 15, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, 
for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's his job. That's his role. He testifies of Jesus. And that last verse, by the way, is important because it tells us how he does it. How do we hear the Spirit's testimony? Let me read it again. Jesus says, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is mine and He will declare it to you. Who's Jesus talking to? He was talking to the apostles. He was talking to His own disciples who, who He had called out as apostles. And He was saying, I'm going to have the Spirit reveal truth to you, and you're going to declare what He has said. Right? He also says to the apostles in the same discourse, you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That's John 15, 27. So, so here's the deal. The Spirit's testimony is revealed through the testimony of the apostles. The Spirit's testimony is what the apostles have written and handed down to us in the New Testament. And this is the argument that John has been making throughout this letter in 1 John, right? He's been saying, look, you want to know the truth, you've got to go back to the apostolic testimony. We were there. He spoke to us. He lived in front of us. We were witnesses. And the Spirit specifically gave us this ministry as the apostles to declare His truth. What we have written is not our truth. It's not our story. It's, it's, it's actually the inspired Word of God and we're the agents that He has appointed to proclaim it. And finally, John says, I've called these three witnesses. I've called the water. I've called the blood. And I've called the Spirit. Look back down at verse 7. And he says, And all three witnesses agree. Their testimony is consistent. Every one of them is saying this, loud and clear, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So he's called his witnesses. What's he going to do next? He's going to make his closing argument, right? Now catch this, because I think this is the application of of so much of the message here. John turns to the jury, and he begins to make this closing argument. And as he summarizes the testimony of the three witnesses, three important main points emerge. We've talked about them already, but I'm going to bring them back here. This This is what John's been saying, not just in this text, but throughout this whole letter. The first thing is this. The eternal nature of Jesus matters. It matters. Again, if Jesus is not the eternal one, if He's just some ordinary but perhaps briefly anointed teacher, then His ministry here had no lasting effect other than to pass down to us some morality that we can just glean from. Try to emulate. Try to, try to, try to live like He lived and, and, and sort of do some of the things that He did in hopes that, that we too might be pleasing to God as God has said He was pleasing to Him. But if, if that's all that He was, then, then we, we have very little except our own effort to try to emulate that to stand on. The eternal nature of Jesus matters. 
And, and it goes into the second main idea because look, if the eternal nature of Jesus is the way he came and was baptized and ministered and died, then this, the atoning death of Jesus as Messiah matters. The atoning death. And again, John's made this case and I've, I've already stated it somewhat this morning, but, but, but go back to it. It's so very important. If Jesus didn't die on the cross as a substitute for us. And the only way he could do that as, a, as an actual sufficient substitute was to go to that cross as a perfect God. Not as a sinful man like you or me, but as the perfect Son of God, the, the sinless one who could exchange righteousness for our sin. If that wasn't the purpose and the effect of his death, then we have nothing. There's no good news in the gospel. It speaks to his efficacy. Only the perfect Son of God could atone for our sin. It also speaks to his exclusivity. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Only the eternal Son could say that. And only the eternal Son could accomplish that. It, it's not enough, as the false teachers might say, look, you could follow after His teaching, but he, what, if He's not really ultimately divine, He's just anointed like others might be anointed, then we could look to others for that same you know, religious experience, that same religious attachment. What difference is Jesus compared to all the rest? John says, no, that, that, that's so important. He is the only one who's eternal and therefore the only one who can save and therefore the only one, period. The only one. His eternal nature matters. His atoning death matters. And finally, the Spirit-breathed, apostolic-delivered Word matters. This testimony of the apostles who were given the Spirit's utterance, this matters. We can't just sort of pick and choose. If, if, if we can say, well, the, 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 there's, there's good things about Jesus' teaching in here that we'll take, but, but some of this other stuff, these miracles and this whole divine thing, we're going to throw that out. If we can just pick and choose what we want from this book, this book becomes utterly worthless. What confidence can I have in any of this book if I get to decide which parts are true and which parts are not? That becomes very subjective, doesn't it? The Word matters because the Spirit is truth and the Spirit has uttered it only through the apostles, only testifying to the only Son of God who's the only way to the Father. It matters. So he makes this closing argument, and I'm going to read it now that I've talked about it. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us. Eternal life. And this life is in 
His Son. You know what? Real simplistically, what John is saying here is, look, I've called witnesses to the stand. They're the divine testimony. I've just put God Himself on the stand who's given proof of this, this identity of Jesus. Would you, listen, would you dare call God a liar? That's what he's saying, right? If the testimony of three people, which would be sufficient in the ancient courts, that was, that was sufficient testimony. Three people give, coming up and telling the same thing. And he's saying, look, I just put three divine witnesses on the stand. This is, a, this is a better, stronger testimony than any three people could ever give. You just heard God demonstrate that this is true. You're going to call him a liar? Seriously, put yourself back in the courtroom. The Spirit of God makes this testimony. Jesus is exactly who I've said. He's the eternal Son of God. And you're saying, go, eh, I don't think you're right. To God. Really? That's what he's saying. And he's saying, look, it matters. Because eternal life matters. This is the testimony. It's eternal life. This is back to the exclusivity of Jesus. There's only one way to eternal life. It's through the right understanding of who Jesus is and what He came to do. It matters. This testimony is the way to life. So He makes His closing argument. And then what, what's left in a trial? You, you're waiting for the verdict, right? You're seeking after the, the verdict. Now, this trial has already been unlike any trial that, that we're ever seeing in, in, with our own eyes, right? This is something unlike anything we're used to. The stakes are higher, certainly. It really is the trial of the ages. There's, not, there's, no, there's no question put before us that's more important than who is Jesus. But this, the witnesses are unusual, right? I mean... Think about it. Water has been called to the stand. Blood has been called to the stand. Spirit has been called to the stand. This is a weird trial, right? It's unusual. So at this point, when we get to the verdict, it shouldn't surprise us that John turns this waiting to find out what the jury says into something very different as well, right? Normally, the power is solely in the hands of the jury at this point. The, the, the prosecution and the defense have rested. They're going to sit there. And they're just kind of waiting to hear, what's the jury going to say? Is the foreman of the jury going to come back and say, I believe you or I believe you, right? The power is entirely in their hands. But not this trial. Not this trial. Because in a stunning twist, John then turns the jury into defendants themselves. He puts them on trial. And he says, look, uh, what you believe ultimately about the identity of Jesus isn't going to affect Jesus. <laughs> it's going to have no effect on Jesus. What it is going to affect is you. It's going to affect your fate, not his fate. His fate's secure. Is yours? And so he turns the jury now into defendants and he asks them this question as they sit in the defendant's chair. He says, like, do you have eternal life? Do you have eternal life? And the answer to that question, the only way to know is to have confidence in that question is, is this. Do you have the Son? Do you have the Son? What does that mean? What does it mean to have the Son? I want to go back to my opening uh, illustration about the Jason Van Dyke, uh, Laquan McDonald trial. Again, two, two relatively unknown people. 
publicly at least, they're, 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 they're nobodies who all of a sudden are thrust into this high-profile case. Laquan, uh, not thrust in, he's, he's dead, but his representation thrust into this high-profile case, and, and, and these two nobodies are now suddenly being represented by somebodies, high-power, big, important attorneys on both sides of, of, of the table, right? And, and so, I'm, I'm, again, I'm putting myself back into that, that situation. And I'm just thinking, if I'm Jason Van Dyke, or if, if I'm the family of Laquan McDonald, or those being represented uh, by Laquan, I'm probably asking this question. How is a nobody like me getting a high-powered attorney like you? Blue-collar cops and, you know, young men in foster systems don't have the money to afford the best attorneys. And yet they probably have the best attorneys, and they got to be asking this question, how did a nobody like me get a somebody like you? How do I have representation from you? And there's a simple answer to that question on both sides. I'm sure it's this. When a high-power attorney sees an opportunity to jump into a case like this and represent somebody who normally could not afford them, they'll often do it for two reasons. The first reason is that they want to... Uh, they want to represent a cause that's perhaps bigger than this one person, right? So in this case, you've got the attorney representing uh, Jason Van Dyke, and, and there is an attorney representing him. He was a former police officer, and, and he's already made it pretty clear that his intent is to defend not just this one man in this one instance, but to defend police officers in general and their ability to do their jobs the way they think they ought to be able to do their jobs. So there's a bigger cause for him involved. Just like the prosecution, who's representing Laquan McDonald in this case, isn't just representing Laquan McDonald, but they're representing a, a, a fear in the black community in particular that we don't have fair treatment. How do we know that we're going to be able to be treated as people and not problems, right? So there's causes that are bigger than the individuals involved. That's, that's one reason why people will jump in to a case like that. There's another reason, uh, and it's, it's, it's even more simplistic, it's the reputation of the lawyer, right? I get to jump in on a high-power case and be seen in that role. That's good for my reputation. All right, so listen to this. I once heard John Piper talking about uh, a movie that he watched, and there was a, a similar kind of situation with a court case uh, where, again, a nobody was being represented pro bono by a somebody. And he's asking the same kinds of questions. How, how's that happen? How's, how are these, uh, what are the motivations for that, that high-powered lawyer to, to enter into this case? And he's the one uh, whom I got those ideas from. Uh, it's it's going to be a, a bigger cause, uh, a liberty cause, and his own reputation. And he says this. Go back to the courtroom now with John. He says, so it is with the Son of God. You're on trial. Now, you're, you're the jury. You're now on trial. The question's been pointed to you. Do you have eternal life? Do you have the Son? Do you have the Son in the same way that these two clients have an attorney? He says, so it is with the Son of God. He has two goals. If you're going to have Jesus, He's got to step in and represent you. And His two goals are this, the liberation of His people from sin and death and the glorification of His own power. 
the cause and his reputation. Liberation of his people from sin and death and the glorification of his own powers. That's the origin of salvation. That's the source of eternal life. Jesus stepping into a nobody like you and me and saying, I will represent you. Do you have me? Do you have representation? You're, you're being on trial. You're being asked, do you have eternal life? Is negatively put like this. Are you in danger because of your sin nature of, of spending eternity apart from God in hell? And the quick answer to that is, Yes. What's the, what's the criteria, Jesus? Perfection. Uh-oh. You need a lawyer. And so Jesus steps in for the greater cause of the liberty of His people and the, the glorification of His own power. And He says, I will represent you. And nobody like you. You just have to trust that my representation of you is pro bono, and secure. I'm offering you representation. You admit you need me. You come under my covering and my legal power to do something about your problem and I'll take care of it. How do you have the Son of God? He makes you an offering. You accept it. You accept it. And He does this thing for those who trust in Him, He wins your case. Not based on your performance, but on His. And the Father is satisfied. And He's only satisfied because it's the eternal Son of God who's accomplished what was necessary for your salvation. So, do you believe Him? Do you believe Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for Jesus, our High Priest, our representative, our substitute. We thank You, Lord, for the testimony of His life, His death, and His resurrection. We thank You, Lord, for the ongoing testimony of Your Spirit that speaks into our hearts through the Word of God that You have written down for us through the apostolic writings and continue to renew in our minds and our hearts daily as we interact with it, Lord. You are active. Your Word is active. Your Spirit is active. We're grateful for His ministry. And I pray, Father, that the ministry of the Spirit would continually point us back to the efficacy of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Thank You for the cross of Christ. Thank You that He didn't just die an ordinary man, but the Son of God died to take away our sin. That His righteousness was accepted by You and transferred to us. Give us faith to believe Him. Give us faith to have Him like our attorney, our representative. Give us faith to believe Him and walk in the newness of life, the eternal life that only He can bring. Lord, I want to pray specifically for anybody in this room who's been wrestling with this notion of, of Jesus being the one. Is He really the only way? Is He really the truth? Is He really the one? Lord, may Your Spirit testify to those hearts even now. Yes, yes, yes. And grant us the faith to repent and believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name.